When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Every day, hundreds of thousands of us are building a future we can all be proud of. For over 36 years, the growth CBUS My Super Investment Option has returned an average of 8.98% per annum for its members, while investing in projects that not only create jobs, but a better future. CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word, story time. The weekend program in which we wander back through the leafy green glades of cricketing history. Uh, I'm Jeff Lemon. Adam Collins is with me and he Hello. remembers things like when things happened, the days on which they <laughs> happened. He'll often say, oh, that, yeah, they know that was a Sunday when that happened in 1977. I, I don't know how he knows these things, but he has told me that it's one year since we started doing a second show on the final word feed. It used to just be one show a week uh, and then we started doing a second show a week and then that second show a week morphed into this show, which is story time, where you're hearing us right now. You remember better than I. It started with something else. I do. I don't forget. It was the 17th of April when we rolled out the first episode of Calling the Shots. Well, it was actually the second episode, but the first substantial episode. We did a little teaser a fortnight before that. But yeah, that's when we realised that, hey, it's the middle of a global pandemic. Why don't we make more of the show and hopefully people will like it and have time to listen to it. And Mm -hmm. So it goes. Uh, I don't think, Jeff, we've ever had a, a week where the weekend show has been less popular than the weekly show. It's always been roughly the same, which is really cool. And it all started with calling the shots. And it ties in really well because we had Lawrence Booth on the show on the weekly edition this week talking about the Wisdom Cricketers Almanac. And in that interview, I, I sort of brushed over the fact that the Almanac had a, a pretty generous citation, both of what we're doing here on The Final Word, but also of calling the shots. Said lots of lovely things about both of those programs or both of the programs we have on this feed, which is kind of cool because, you know, it means that not only are we talking to a lot of people who enjoy listening to what we do, but I suppose uh, others are listening to and paying attention in the sort of inner sanctum of the game. Yeah, I, it, it's you, you don't necessarily do things so that other people will tell you that they're good, but it is nice sometimes. It is. Unless they're really bad people, you know. If, like, <laughs> Ivan Malat rings you and says he likes your podcast, maybe you don't feel good about that. You know, maybe you prefer that that wasn't the case, but not in a position to make any telephone calls anymore. Uh, yep, I think it was mostly about you. I mean, they described you being uh, as being a sort of kingpin, um, which, which I'm sure you must have enjoyed. And so I say congratulations. It is true that you do an enormous amount of work and uh, work very hard on a, a lot of things in an entirely insane way. So, um, yeah, you've, uh, it's, 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 it's reasonable that someone says something nice once in a while. Yeah, yeah, it's been a lot of hard work, but as we say, all worth it because we've loved doing it. On matters calling the shots, by the way. We're going to roll them out again on the YouTube channel. So we're mindful that in the last couple of months we've found a whole new audience, which is just fantastic. And if this is the first time you've listened to Storytime, strap in. Hopefully you'll enjoy uh, learning about some stories from the history of the game. But it does mean that 
there'll be a lot of people that have probably no idea what we're talking about when we're saying calling the shots. That's the documentary we had on this feed about the history of cricket commentary, the the century-long history of cricket commentary that we rolled out uh, in April, May and June last year, myself and Daniel Norcross. So what we'll do is we will pop that on the YouTube feed uh, with each episode roughly going up on the same date that it went onto the podcast feed last year. So that symmetry with dates mm-hmm. uh, will continue and, and we'll scratch that obsessive compulsive itch that I so very much have. It's, um, it's a clever name, calling the shots. I, I've never spoken about this with you, but uh, <laughs> it, it does that thing that, that is fun in language where something means something and then it means something else. Calling the shots being a, a well-established sort of aphorism for somebody who's in charge, which in turn comes from... It, it 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 becomes a metaphor because initially it's about film directors who decide which shot the camera is going mm, to make, mm. and so then it becomes metaphorized to mean anybody who's in charge of deciding what happens. But then you re you metaphorize it um, by <laughs> by making it literal about cricket. Because if you're commentating cricket, you're literally you're commentating is also known as calling, and you're telling people what shots have been played. You're calling the shots. It's very good, very clever. I, well I, done. I, I don't think that we can take credit for that. I reckon that was Matt Thacker who ran the Night Watchman or. Runs the Night Watchman, runs Wisdom mm. uh, Cricket Monthly from uh, the, the Tri North Company, but he also looked after the Pinch Hitter magazine where the podcast was living, uh, or the mini series, I should say, was living. And uh, I think he came up with it and we went, aha, that's perfect. So uh, we didn't ever need to debate names because the, the, the first one that was put up was uh, fit for purpose. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so a year of secondary final word shows, which have now extended into tertiary and whatever <laughs> version of that word is for four times and sometimes five. Um, we did a, an IPL live stream with Daniel Norcross on his birthday, which had me <laughs> up at 4am and, and him after a bottle of white wine watching Glenn Maxwell take the Royal Challengers Bangalore home. We've got uh, weekly reports from Glenn Maxwell from his hotel uh, that's up on the YouTube feed. There are all kinds of things going around with the final word at the moment uh, and plans for excursions overseas. Yes, and, and just before we move off the IPL, I, I ended up being a viewer of, of the final word yesterday because Winnie, oh, yeah. was, Winnie was crook, so therefore I was carrying her when she was wailing all afternoon when Rach was working in the other room. And we were, you know, sort of, I was for a brief moment in time there moderating the comments, but mostly just watching you two go at it. And it was really fun. I, I think we should do that again. Watching Daniel crawl around on his bed um, to collect food and drinks in his pyjamas on his birthday, it was a nice combination. <laughs> But the tone was great. Uh, I loved second screening the game with you two and hopefully that'll be something that we can do uh, at other points in the IPL. Obviously, we're all busy boys, but there'll be windows, there'll be games and we'll pick them carefully. We won't just do any old game. Yesterday was obviously Warner and Maxwell. It made sense. And then, mm-hmm. of course, we've got Glenn. We spoke to him again just before we've recorded this, actually. So I suspect uh, if you're in the podcast feed, you may have already listened to our chat with him. But if not, he'll be a feature of the final word for each of the next six weeks. It's well worth it. You can actually go and look back over the the live broadcast. It's still up there. It's worth doing for Winnie's cameo in in which um, (laughs) one of her favourite things in life is waving. A big fan of waving. A long time pre-verbal, starting to get a bit more verbal now, but, Mm. you know, still loves the wave. And very early on mastered 
the idea that down the Zoom screen, yes. that was another person. It was a person you could wave to, right? So that's been a consistent thing for quite a while. When Adam dropped in for about five minutes, um, that five minutes was quickly cut off when, when he started to absolutely scream and howl, completely covered in snot and looking absolutely miserable. <laughs> you know, one of the saddest babies I've ever seen. But at the point that Adam said, all right, we'd better go. We'll leave you to it. She knew that that was a time of departing and thus began to wave <laughs> while crying at the same time. So... If you go and find the uh, the YouTube clip, you you can find that bit, that moment. I think it's about an hour in with the very sad wave and the wailing all simultaneous. It's it's a beautiful combination. Yeah, I, I look back at it as well. She uh, she knows how to play up to the camera. She's been on YouTube a few times now, so I, I gather that's the thing that kids mostly say at school now. When when we were kids growing up, perhaps Jeff, it might have been well, I want to be on television. That was the sort of the proxy mm-hmm. for wanting to be a celebrity. Now kids at school say they want to be a YouTuber, and Winnie can say, well, I actually have been a YouTuber. Um, on my dad and my uncle Jeff's podcast. (laughs) I I wonder how much she's going to resent you for it when she's of an age to do so, that that there's all of this um, documentary evidence of her growing (laughs) up um, that that she will have no ability to retract. Uh, It it happens. Yeah, it It, does. It happens to, 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 to people of a certain generation. You mentioned we've got excursions coming up, and, and you're right to say that. Dare Art to Dream, for those who haven't been following the show recently, this is going to be our 2022 excursion to Brazil to hang out with the Brazilian women's national team uh, in Sao Paulo, or just outside of Sao Paulo. And uh, Dara Ismail Khan, who were the Pakistani first-class team, who in their first game back in 1964 were defeated by an innings and 851 runs, the biggest margin in first-class cricket history. And thus, they are the two places we are going to visit next year, all things being equal with COVID and vaccine rollouts and, and all the rest of it. And we've been recruiting <laughs> again this week, Jeff, with all sorts of weird, wonderful roles in the uh, support staff, shall we call it. Jack Jorgensen isn't entirely sure what's going to work out for him in terms of uh, which parts of the tour he might be available for. However, if he can't make it, he's offered his services as an over-by-over blogger. In other words, doing, Jeff, what you and I do for The Guardian. (laughs) So on the assumption, he says, that the games will be live-streamed. And look, why wouldn't they? This is the modern age. We can do these sorts of things. We could do it with with GoPros on the helmets. If needs be. If we want. If needs be. So so, so Jack will OBO the OBOs, which I thought was quite nice. George Norman from WA said that he's touch and go at this point, but... He's definitely going to be our official donut supplier. And given the stash he delivered to me in hotel quarantine in Perth from his uh, bakery, I think that's a a very sound Mm. idea. Michelle Garland says she'll bring vigour and commitment to any off-field role. (laughs) Other than that, I'll make drinks, cheer and take photos and keep the beers cold. Provide a listening ear to anyone who may need it and I'll be the chief encourager. Hang on a second. Have I nominated myself as the team mum? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is what uh, Roberta, the the Brazilian captain, said that she was called and treated as, certainly through the first few years when she had a lot of very young players under her wing, but um, they've managed to, to grow up and find their own ability to fly yes. now. Um, but, but Michelle, our team will be less less advanced in, in cricketing ways, so yeah, we, we may need that um, care and encouragement. Absolutely. Then, if it isn't our old friend Danny McGee with a leg for an arm and an arm for a knee, he says that he'll bring handy medium pace, but more importantly, he's just started learning... Portuguese so we've got a translator 
for when we're in Brazil, uh, courtesy of Danny McGee. And uh, last but not least, no, we've got a couple more to go. Sure, uh, warm. Uh, Tilo Fob, our old pal Tilo, who we've spent some time with over the years, he isn't sure that we need another PhD on our tour. I think we've got a couple of PhDs already signed up, but he's an expert on malaria, so he should be good value on the tour, potentially. He's also, Jeff, more importantly than all of that, identified a soundtrack, which I think links back to the old Venga Boys song, Brazil. Yeah, this is uh, Bellini, Samba de Janeiro, which I'm, I'm pretty sure listening to it, that's what the the Dutch producers behind the Venga Boys sampled <laughs> for their, their seminal track, Brazil. Um, so let's definitely never play that song on uh, on. <laughs> <laughs> on the, um, the the tour that we go on. Yeah, on a platform which will almost certainly get it dragged off if we pop this episode on YouTube, which we almost certainly will. Uh, and last of all, Pat McKeon. He is going to be our dour opening batsman come scorer. He'll be there faster than we can say Naba Bapatoli if we get over there. Well, Pat, I can assure you we are coming and you'll be our Scottish representative in the team. How's that sound? I am intrigued to see that you've gone with the Latin joining word the hyphen c-u-m hyphen it is an increasingly difficult latin additive <laughs> to use in the modern the modern era do you remember the the line in a uh one of the cricket websites when the australian team were going across to the uk last september and they said the australians were going to quarantine come train in a, a hotel <laughs> at southampton quarantine come train it was a real it was a phrase with a real viscosity to it. Um, it, it. It just, it just didn't read right. And I think I just How think we could. Reti- I think we could just. How spot what on what did about end? <laughs> what, what about end? Could we just use end? They're going to quarantine and train. They're, they're going. You're a you're a, a a model and actor. You know, like I think it's time just to 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 do away with. That particular little bit of Latin. So it's time to come. Done some investigating into it, and yeah, it's time to it's time to leave it out. I reckon, <laughs> Jeff. We've done a seventeen minute intro. That wasn't the plan, but hey, it's okay. We've got to the most important part of the show. What are we here for, Jeff? Nerd pledge. Nerd pledge. It is the game. The very fun game that we play with uh, some very nice people on our patron page and they do two things. They decide to support the show very kindly by sending us uh, amounts of currency, whatever their local currency is, but they also turn that into a game because they don't just send us the normal amount that you might expect uh, to, to, to pay for an item, for instance. They make it a number that is very specific because it relates to cricket in some way. And we don't know what that way is, but they do know what that way is. And we have to figure it out. So the first of these is a double header. Two people with the same number who may have different reasons for sending that number. The number is $4.49 and it comes in from Shane Fitzgibbon and Sarah Vale. And uh, Adam, you are going to have first crack at 449, which, of course, could mean 44.9, anything that's 449 in a, in a related way. Uh, what have you come up with? All right, Shane. Let's, uh, let's do a few things here. Let's uh, see if any of these stick to start the show. First of all, mm-hmm. I noted that two English bowlers played two test matches and bowled 449 deliveries across them. Uh, Harold mm-hmm. Rhodes in 1959, then Neil Melander in 1992. Together at last, unlikely to be them, but I thought that was interesting. 
In terms of other 449s, this might be Maddie Renshaw uh, was Cat 449 from an Australian perspective, of course, a former final mm-hmm. word guest on the show a couple of years ago. 11 test matches he's played, averaging 33, of course, that century at the SCG and playing in the Shield final this weekend. Now, Jeff, another bit that might be interesting to you is that it relates to the slower century made in test cricket, 449. I know that you spent an inordinate amount of time going through this some months ago, you had about six swings yep. before you finally worked out that we're looking at Madassa Nazar, uh, who made a century in 419 deliveries uh, as a 21-year-old in his second Test match against England at Lahore in 1977. But you press fast forward from the 419, he actually faced in the whole innings 449 balls. Four is 114, 519 minutes, which works out to be 11.6 runs per hour. By comparison, the slowest 50, which was Jeff Boycott, he finished on 63 from 267 balls, uh, which was 11 runs per hour. So right there on on the same uh, line of betting, uh, so to speak. So uh, Shane, a few options there for 449. I doubt any of them are it. Maybe it's Matt Renshaw, but um, Jeff, you can pick it up and run through a few more for Sarah Vale. Yeah. So from memory, it was 557 minutes from Madassa Nazar. Was right. it, was that or was it five seventeen? This was was this was the Rob um, O'Neill uh, Rob O'Neill epic, yeah, wasn't it? This was the Jean Valjean. Um, <laughs> I will. I will find you with my Inspector Javert hat on when we eventually track this one down because it wasn't the it wasn't the total of minutes faced over the whole innings. It was the total of minutes faced at the at the time that he brought up the hundred. So that was a right. a somewhat different thing, which was a, a bit more difficult to track down. So the other thing that four forty nine could relate to is something that you and I witnessed in person, mm. Adam. We were there. In November 2015 at Bell Reeve, uh, an extremely cold test match it was, uh, the West Indies playing down there, and uh, Sean Marsh combined with Adam Voges to put on a partnership of 449 against the Windies. It was the the innings in which Voges made the 269 not out that uh, took his aggregate against the West Indies to 500 and whatever it was for once dismissed, mm-hmm. which remains his average against the West Indies, 500 and... I think 534 because he, he also made 100 in the in the next test match at Melbourne, didn't he? So this was just before Christmas, then they play at Boxing Day and then again uh, at Sydney in the rained off test. But I reckon the only time Voges batted after that was a century at Melbourne. So yeah, this might have taken him into the 400s and he finished on about yeah, yeah. 530 or 540 or something with uh, just the one out. That's right, after the 100 in Dominica earlier that year. Yep. So that partnership became the highest fourth wicket stand in the history of tests, went past the 437 that Mahela Jayawardena made with Dilan Samarawira for Sri Lanka against Pakistan in 09. So that must have been just before the terrorist attack on yep. the Sri Lankan bus in, in 2009 and that partnership had gone past Colin Cowdery and Peter May making 411 in 1957 a test match that Adam has talked about <laughs> a lot as the first test uh, broadcast on TMS radio commentary uh, which you can hear about in the Calling the Shots documentary that he mentioned <laughs> earlier and the interesting thing about the 449 was just how close it got to mm. breaking the record for the highest ever Australian partnership between Bill Ponsford and Don Bradman. They had 451 and I remember us sort of 
praying that Voges and Marsh wouldn't beat it because we thought this is a bit ordinary, isn't it? Like well, you've uh, got Ponsford and Bradman. <laughs> you want them to stay at the top, don't you? Like, well, it wasn't not- just us. Remember, I, I remember well, Jeff, that we were working with Jim that summer, Jim Maxwell that summer, and Jim was, uh, yeah, shall we say, mostly invested in 451 remaining the record and <laughs> not being overtaken. Mm. He, was, he was thrilled when Sean Marsh eventually fell for, I reckon, 180 or something like that. 182. 182. It was one run more than the 181 that Mitchell Marsh made at the uh, at the Wacker, which right. I'm told he's reminded of on a regular basis. <laughs> What's your highest test score? It's kind of areas. So yeah, the, the the 451 eventually withstood the surge by a mere two runs when when that stand ended at 4:49. But I was finding some interesting things while looking into these partnerships. So so the 451 partnership. That's when Australia win at the Oval by 562 runs in the 1934 Ashes. When you're looking at highest partnerships in Test cricket, Bradman's got another one not far below that with 405 that he put on with Sid Barnes at the SCG in 1946. And then he's got a 388 that he put on with Ponsford again. That was actually one test before they put on the 451. So... Not only does Bradman have three of the top 19 partnerships to this day in Test cricket, but two of them were in consecutive tests, which is absolutely ridiculous. Well, that's the 34 Ashes where I think we went through it a couple of months ago, Jeff, where he went into that Leeds test, I mean, not going poorly, but just not going at Bradman-esque levels. And then he rattles off his his second triple hundred at Leeds, of course, the most famous of those was four years earlier, and then backs it up with the big double at the Oval and that's the end of the series. But yeah, like it's a it's a, it's a lopsided series distribution of runs for Bradman, having made the vast majority mm. of them in his final two innings. And the Leeds one is a bit different because the Oval one, they dominate, they bat first. The partnership starts at one for twenty one, which then becomes four hundred and seventy two for two. <laughs> well, I've always wondered. I've always wondered what because um, uh, Bill Brown's the, the first man out, if I recall correctly, uh, yeah. out early. I think he's he's out for ten or something like that. Yeah, you, you've got to feel for him sitting there with the, you know, sitting there with the feet up, reading a book or reading the paper, whatever it is, for a couple of days, watching the next two blokes bat at at four fifty one. Not fun. Yeah, but you know they're 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 comfortably on top in in that game. But the Leeds partnership before that, they're batting second. England have made two hundred, so you know they're behind on the scoreboard, and it's thirty nine for three because yeah. Bradman comes into bat at number five. So they're actually in a bit of strife, and thirty nine for three becomes four hundred and twenty seven for four by the time the <laughs> partnership's broken. So I also thought it was interesting that the Leeds Test we were talking about how many tests have been played, you know, two and a half thousand ish. That's Test number two hundred and thirty six. So most of the big partnerships on the list, like the ones, the, the highest partnerships, they're they're all from later test matches. They're from like 1,000 plus or 2,000 plus as far as the the test number goes. Um, you don't get a lot of big stands in early test matches. So to find a partnership that's earlier than any of the three Bradman ones, you have to go all the way down to 70th on the partnership list. So the 70th biggest partnership is the first one that happened before Bradman did his business, mm, and that's mm. when Jack Hobbs and Wilfred Rhodes made three hundred and twenty-three, which we uh, which we talked about last week. Of course, Jeff, we mentioned that that uh, mm. that Hobbs and Rhodes partnership maybe two story times ago. And uh, the twelfth biggest partnership. Just just noting this because players who we like on the final word, Vinu Mancad, 
the founding father, the, the spiritual light of the final word, if you will, <laughs> put on 413 with Pankaj Roy. And I was very disappointed to see that this happened in test number 420. So they very nearly put on 420 in test number 420. <laughs> Blaze up, fellas. That would have been good. Light another blunt, Vinu. Uh, thank you to uh, Shane Fitzgibbon and Sarah Vale for giving us plenty of room to work in to start the day on 449. Jeff, next up, 444. Yes, 444 is another double header. It comes in from Shyam Sundaraman, who's a, a recent patron joiner, who joined as a Julio and became a nerd after the fact, who has come up the list because Shyam has the same number as Crispin Crunch, a long-time Patreone, who is back with this number as well. $4.44 or £4.44, as it may be. Uh, there was a clue from Shyam Sundaraman. The clue was it relates to Eden Park in this century, Adam. Uh, okay, so Shyam, I hope this is, uh, this is right where I've ended up on this. Uh, it, it's that crazy draw in 2013 at Eden Park. We think of Eden Park as a, as a limited overs venue principally these days, don't we, due to mm. the, the short straight boundaries and the crazy scores we've seen in white ball cricket. But it has hosted a couple of tests against England in, in recent years. And the one in 2018, which was the corresponding week uh, alongside Sandpaper, where England were all out for sort of 40-odd on the first morning or something like that. And the 2013 draw. So we'll come to the 444 in a sec, but to recap what happens before that, England are set 481 to win in the fourth innings after two-metre Peter Fulton makes twin tons uh, for the home side. So New Zealand are well ahead in the game. And England aren't really chasing the score, obviously. They're, they're just trying to bat out time and see if they can salvage a draw. It's the third test of the series. The first two were draws as well. So a draw here is enough for them to retain the trophy. Okay, so 33 overs to go when it's seven down and Stuart Broad walks out to join Matt Pryor. And Broad faces 77 balls for six and they really keep uh, the New Zealand team at bay. And then Kane Williamson uh, with the ball gets involved in the space of three deliveries. He finds Broad's outside edge and then Anderson's outside edge as well who was batting at number 10. So they've got five overs to survive when Monty Panesar walks out to join Matt Pryor and they get the job done. Monty faces five deliveries in the last five overs and mm. makes two not out. Matt Pryor, outstanding, unbeaten on 110 when the game's complete. But Kane Williamson, yeah, it's interesting because this is his um, best day as a test cricketer with the ball. He bowled 20 overs and took four for 44. He also picked up Alistair Cook earlier on in that fourth innings and the night watchman was Steve Finn, who I should say is Woodstock's own uh, Steve Finn, uh, partner of uh, the final Word podcast. I, I noted the other day, Jeff, that Finney was playing a second 11 game uh, for Middlesex and bashed 28 not out from uh, 28 balls with a six as well, playing for the second 11 uh, using that new Woodstock, which was quite nice. Anyway, so Kane Williamson uh, goes on to finish uh, with four for 44 off his 20 overs, as I mentioned before. Where this is interesting is that He's taken 30 wickets in test cricket in 85 test matches at an average of 40, which isn't, I suppose, too bad as a, a golden arm pinch hitter. But then you look at it in a bit more depth and scroll through it and you see that he's barely bowled uh, since 2015 when he really took the next step as a, a test batsman and subsequently uh, became the New Zealand skipper. Indeed, he's only taken two wickets since 2015. Uh, and one of them we were there for, Jeff, when he collected Nathan Lyon at Christchurch in February 2016. So from a guy who bowled quite a lot, as evidenced by this performance in, in 2013 mm -hmm. at Eden Park, which I hope is what Shyam is, is steering us towards, uh, to now when I think obviously there's been a few issues with his bowling action. He's 
been sent to, as they might have said in the 90s, the University of Western Australia for some further in investigation on that action. <laughs> um, but I think he's cleared to bowl at the moment. But yeah, anyway, four for 44, Eden Park. Let us know how I've gone. I like the phrasing uh, that he collected Nathan Lyon. I just had an, an image of Kane Williamson pulling up in his car, you know, to take Nathan to school. <laughs> Come on, Nathan, you ready? Come on, Nathan, we're going to be late. Um, yeah, I remember watching the end of that test match um, at the time on the television and it was, it was quite the finish. It was, I was very invested in it at the time. So 4.44 for Crispin Crunch, uh, 4.44 as a team total is a good one because... Numbers that do that are satisfying, you know, if a team ends on 4-4-4, easy to remember, feels nice, sounds good in the mouth. But it's also the score, it hasn't been made many times, half a dozen times, but three of them are absolute crackers. So one is the Adelaide-India test match from 2014, the Phil Hughes test match, when India made 444 batting second, Virat Kohli made the first of his twin tons, Rahane, Pajara, um, Rohit Sharma all made runs and they... Uh, put up that big total after Australia's big total before David Warner made the, the second of his hundreds and Coley made the second of his hundreds in the fourth innings. Another one is the 05 Manchester game. England made 444 batting first. Michael Vaughan's big moment of that series when he he made that big hundred and, and carried them to a, a large score in the first innings that, that set up that thriller. And then I thought maybe for Crispin Crunch because last time... Crispy had a number, it was to do with Kirtley Ambrose. So I wondered if there might be a West Indies connection. In 1953, the Indian team go to play five tests in the Windies. They play the last of them in Kingston. And we mentioned Pankaj Roy only a few minutes ago. And Pankaj Roy, um, <laughs> after conceding a, a, a big deficit to the West Indies on the first innings, when India batted in the third innings, they made 444 based on a big 150 and even 150 from Pankaj Roy, meaning that they set the West Indies 181 to win in the fourth innings and had them 92 for four that ran out of time and, and weren't able to get back a win. So the, the Windies won the series 1-0. But those are three excellent test matches that all have a 444 in them. Nice. Well, Crispin Crunch, uh, let us know whether Jeff has landed on the right one there. Next up, Jeff, 276 from Michael Holden with a clue. Be economical in your thinking. This cricketer walks to a different beat, something akin to Peter Chris. So, Jeff, all I really got to here, and I'm looking forward to handing this over to you, is that, of course, Peter Chris was a founding member of the band Kiss. And I suppose mm -hmm. there, are, there are a group of Australian fast bowlers in the 90s, 2000s, such as friends of the show, Damien Fleming and Jason Gillespie, who used to cite Kiss as one of their favourite bands. But, I mean, I, mm -hmm. I think this is probably something more to do with economy rates based on the uh, on the clue. But just thought I'd just throw that in there, that Kiss and Peter Chris might be the way into the economy rate story. Mm. Yeah, I, I remember seeing the Icelandic synth band Mum um, do a cover of I Was Made For Loving You Baby entirely on melodicas. They had like six <laughs> band members all playing... <laughs> so you know that can that can happen. Uh, look, Peter Chris. So Peter Peter Chris was the drummer in the band and got kicked out of the band for trying to kill Gene Simmons with a broken champagne bottle um, after they had a fight on stage. And he I think initially he hit Gene Simmons in the back of the head with a drumstick when he was throwing the drumsticks into the crowd. And then they had an altercation between the main set and the encore. And then after the show. Peter Chris went off and smashed a champagne bottle and lay in wait 
um, <laughs> and was restrained by the by the crew, and subsequently decided that creative differences had um, had, had superseded their ability to tour together. Um, came back and toured with them some decades later and got kicked out of the band several more times. So, you know, when you're on a good thing, <laughs> stick to it, I suppose. So I was sort of looking around for people who might have shared that kind of wild temper, you know, uh, breaking things in dressing rooms and so on. There was a drummer who worked with Motorhead and Iron Maiden whose name was Gary Bowler. Uh, so I did think it might be to do with Gary Bowler, but it's not. But, yeah, there, there was. it always came back to that, economy be economical in your, in your thinking okay it has to be an economy rate it's relating to a drama i looked up every player in every format of international cricket at least with an economy rate of 2.76 per over none of which seemed like they had a real rock and roll kind of bent hanif muhammad <laughs> bob christiani for the windies in the 50s or whatever it was barat aaron who's currently india's bowling coach uh, there are two current or recent um, Afghan bowlers in Javed Amadi and Amir Hamza, who both have an econ rate of 2.76. What are the chances of that? Mm, but, but none of that really worked. So drummer, though, drummer in a band, drummer in a band who's also a cricketer, I was like, okay, maybe, maybe this is where we're going. It's not, it's not six and out. It's got nothing to do with that. Don't worry there. But um, who's a player who played 45 matches for an adopted country and then went on to become the drummer in a Bon Scott tribute band, among other things. Diamond Joe Scuderi uh, played 45 games for Italy, was a drummer in a Bon Scott tribute band and also played 82 first-class matches for Lancashire and South Australia, taking 179 wickets at an economy rate of 2.76 per over. Outstanding. He still lives in Lancashire, I'm pretty sure, Joe Scuderi. He, for a time, was quite active on on the Twitters. Uh, I think we found a photo of him, didn't we? Or maybe that was at a game that I was at and you weren't at. I found a photo of him at a PM's 11, or from a PM's 11 from many years ago, and put that on his radar, and he enjoyed it a great deal, along with Damien Fleming. That works for me, and it makes a lot of sense, given what he's done post-cricket. So thank you, Michael Holden. Let us know. Double header to follow. Uh, Slim Johns and Peter Dowling have both gone with 306. We'll start with Slim, who has a clue. Slim says, I can assure you that 306 has nothing to do with Stumpy Laird and his cap number, the 306th player for Australia, one assumes. Think more along the lines of Sheffield Shield cricket and you'll be well on your way. Yeah, so this this could be a very straightforward one and I've worked on that assumption. The most likely outcome might be the outcome. What's that? Occam's Razor approach Occam's I've, razor. I've taken to uh, yes. this nerd pledge. So there's been two 306s made in Shield cricket. The David Hooks innings, which we talked about a couple of months ago. So I'll, I'll swerve that and go straight to Simon Kadic, given that just last week we were discussing the Simon Kadic Sheffield Shield season of 2007-08 when he made 1,506 runs, I think it was, and broke all the records. In the second game of that season, that's when he made his 306 against Queensland at the SCG. So Queensland made 467 first, so pretty good track. Matthew Hayden won 7-9 of those, and in reply, New South Wales, 601 for 8 declared. Cat took just 351 deliveries to reach 306 and struck nine sixes. I don't think we really think of Cat as a, a six-hitter, but there he was. That was seven more than what Hooksy hit in his uh, quicker innings of 306, which he uh, only faced 330 balls, so 21 deliveries quicker than Cat to that mark uh, when he plunged 
funded Tasmania at Adelaide Oval in 1987. And I suppose the other thing in the hooksy column here is that SA won that game against Tasmania, uh, whereas this was a draw eventually. But yes, one of five centuries, and I think... Eight other scores above 50 in Kadic's remarkable run. Uh, he averaged 94.1 uh, through the season. And the other measure which I thought was interesting is that the next highest run scorer was David Hussey. He led Dave Hussey by 498 runs in second position. So again, that sort of puts in perspective just how dominant he was before <laughs> um, getting recalled uh, to the Australian Test team early in 2008, Jeff. Very nice. Um, yeah, good to... Uh do a double catch when possible. 498-run gap, substantial. Uh, Peter Dowling has given a clue as well. She says, uh, found this number when Googling stats from 1947, the year my dad was born. Fittingly, it relates to a visiting team from this summer, this Australian summer, one presumes, and a final word favourite ruler. So the only place that I could possibly be taking this uh, would be linking it to the Nawab of Pataudi, or one of the <laughs> Nawabs of Pataudi, of which there are two. The junior Nawab, Tiger, didn't start playing until uh, about 10 years after 1947, so couldn't be him. The senior Nawab, Iftikhar Ali Khan, he had his last cricket engagement on a tour of England in 1946. Mm. So I thought, could this, the, so there could be a sort of statistical compendium, you know, a wisdom 1947 type situation would include the 1946 right. yep. summer. So I spent a lot of time looking for Nawab senior links to 306, and, and there was nothing that I could really land on. His son, the Tiger did make 3,054 runs for Sussex, which I suppose if you wanted to turn that into three figures, then you could make 3,054 into 3,006 as a roundup. But I'm not, not that's sure if you would, but that's up. okay. <laughs> I think you'd um, round it to 3,005, would you not? <laughs> but, no, but it's above 3,054, oh, so it's, it's above. It's, if, if you were rounding up to the nearest Okay, okay, okay fair enough. Okay. Mm. Like if you had to make 3,054 into three figures, you know, if, if you had to represent it, like round that last one, it would have to be 306. But wrong Nawab, no cigar. The They were the Nawabs of the Principality of Pataudi, which was dissolved in the 70s when India got rid of royals and it got absorbed into the state of Haryana, of which the capital is Chandigarh. Pataudi, the city, is 306 kilometres away from Chandigarh. <laughs> so, so there's that. <laughs> But that didn't seem compelling. So I did wonder if maybe Peter got confused about the ruler status um, and, and was thinking instead of someone who is not a ruler except a ruler of the hearts of the final word, someone we mentioned only minutes ago, Vinu Mankad, because on the 1947-48 Indian tour to Australia, uh, he didn't start well with the bat. He had four scores in single figures, but then he made a century at Melbourne, went to Adelaide and made 49, came back to Melbourne for another test for another century, and across the series made a grand total of 306 runs for the series starting in 1947. So I reckon that's where you're going, Peter Dowling. Vinu Mancad 306. I'm certain of it. There it is. It took you a while, but you got there in the end. Thank you, Peter Dowling, and thank you, Slim Johns. Uh, that is the end of our new numbers uh, this week. So what we're going to do is take a brief break and return with some revisits, and I assure you it's worth sticking around for because there are some absolute corkers. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw, and you're listening to The Final Word Podcast. 
Jeff, I love it when our worlds collide in, in different parts of our working orbit, uh, run into other bits. And that is the case with Lord's Taverners, who we've been working with now for, I suppose, the, the better part of 12 months on the final word, and are very proud to do so. And they work with Woodstock Cricket, who we were discussing not only earlier this show, but on our weekly program last week too. And uh, it, yeah, it was a reminder to me that there are a lot of people in the cricketing community who work very closely with Lord's Taverners. And only now, indeed, only in the last few days, we're able to properly leave the house in the UK and see people. Um, indeed, I'm doing that this afternoon. I'm going off to have lunch uh, with Daniel Norcross for his birthday after we finish recording Storytime, which is kind of nice. But yeah, the, the Lord's Tabs in terms of big events, that won't be happening for quite a long time, which reinforces the, the message that we've been hammering home all year so far, which is that these programs don't fund themselves. Uh, we need to find a way to make sure that we play our part in making sure that the really important work they've been doing for seven decades can continue as we bounce out of this pandemic. What the Lord's Taverners do fundamentally is try to help um, particularly young people, um, young people living with disability or living in situations of disadvantage, uh, and to to help them be able to make social connections to, to feel connected and understood um, because isolation and, and loneliness hit people in those situations much harder than than others and that's not just an assumption that's statistically borne out that that people living with disability or living in disadvantage are, are much more likely to have experience uh, feelings of loneliness and, and isolation and, uh, and and worthlessness and, and a lack of being cared for mm. uh, or cared about essentially and so you know, this is a time when a lot of people know how that has felt after going through all of the lockdowns and isolation periods that we've experienced at, at different times over the last year and more, you know, stretching into the second year of that. So that's what the Lord's Taverners programs are about. They use cricket as one way to, to help um, create a social environment for people who need it um, and to address those feelings and, and ameliorate them. Yeah, it's great that the game can be a vehicle for that as well. I think yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about the cricket community or the cricket family at large uh, through the pandemic last 13, 14 months and Lord's Tabs serve a really important role in that, as you say, in helping some of the most vulnerable people in our cricketing community and really giving back to them. And as far as the, the, the charitable side of things, yes, there won't be those big events in 2021 or at least not until much later in the year, which is regrettable and unfortunate just due to the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in here in the UK. But it doesn't necessarily require hundreds of people rocking up at a lunch to make it financially viable. It can be done another way. And the stat that we like to roll out is that if you're willing to contribute three pounds per month, so the equivalent of, say, like a cup of coffee a month, five bucks a month in Australian terms, that is enough to get one kid registered in a program throughout the course of a year. So it doesn't take a tremendous amount in terms of each of us putting our hands in our pockets for a small amount to ensure that it can make a big difference for people in the community who really need it and people in the community, our cricketing community, who the Lord's Tabs have done fantastic work for now over seven decades. So take a look. It's all in the show notes there at lordstaverners.org. We're proud to be associated with them on The Final Word. Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. This is The Final Word, story time with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. And now is the time of the show for the revisits when we look back at the numbers we may not have got right in previous weeks. We're not perfect and neither are you. Uh, Mark Henderson 
with his 5.01. We were looking at the 1911-12 Ashes, naturally, and uh, Johnny <laughs> won't hit today. Douglas, uh, instead of looking at Brian Lara's 501, uh, neither of which were the answer, Mark gave a few clues to you, Adam. And, he did. And uh, you have... You've, you've, you've put them to good use. Yeah, so the, the main clue was that he started watching cricket in 1983, which is the same age he was then that his daughter Anna is now the uh, the young leg spinner who one day is going to be our first final word listener to play international cricket. She's injured at the moment with a dodgy shoulder, by the way, so she's been working on her fielding and her batting, but um, looking forward to watching Anna play at some point later in the year. So 1983 and 501, well, the 501st Englishman to play test cricket was in that year, which stands to reason on the basis that it's when Mark first engaged with the game. And that was Nick Cook. And he says in his clue that we were wrong about Frank Foster, which is someone else who we're also looking at for his 501. But there's another Foster in the sequence. Well, 502 uh, was Neil Foster. So Cook and Foster were two men who, you know, averaged 32 with the ball in Test cricket, which by comparison isn't bad when you look at the players that follow them. You have to go a pretty long way from 1983 to find the next Englishman who plays 50 Test matches. That's Robin Smith who debuts in 1988 with cap 500. So uh, I think the point that Mark is making here is that when he first tapped into the game, it was a pretty lowly time for English cricket across the board. Although it must be said that they did win the Ashes in, in 1985 and again in 1986-87, so it wasn't all bad. Anyway, I digress. He also wanted us to know that in 1983, uh, Panini did a cricket sticker album where Cook and Foster were dubbed the faces of the future. Um, he threw his away, but he wants to know whether anyone may have kept theirs. Of course, Panini sticker books are, are an institution over here around uh, World Cup football especially, so I like the idea that they dip their toe in the water with cricket back in the early 80s. So if you've got the 1983 Panini sticker book, let us know because Mark Henderson wants to get his hands on a copy of it again. Excellent. Uh, the number for Will Cuxon, $5.57, uh, not the number of minutes battered by Madassa Nazar for the slowest <laughs> century in Test history. We were looking at some things around Don Bradman in 1939. Um, Will said uh, that when we went back to him for a bit more information that he conceded he'd gone very cryptic, and that he was looking at something that involved a stat in part of the scorecard you might not expect. It was not in the Sheffield Shield game, but a domestic one-dayer, and he said uh, four tonnes, including a very well-known double, and that was probably enough, Adam, to get you off and running, given that we had spoken about double centuries made in domestic Australian cricket yes. not long before that. Yeah, it took a couple of prompts and back and forth with Will and I to get to where I needed to be, but it became obvious in the end that he's referring to Ben Dunk's double tonne in Perhaps one of the most remarkable 50-over games played in Australia back at North Sydney Oval in October 2014. I think of this as like the second glory era of the Mercantile Mutual in that it was back on free-to-air television. All the games were on. It was carnival style. It was day after day early in, in the season. And I think we were kind of all pretty engaged with it, which meant that when Ben Dunk smacked 229 not out, we were all paying attention, <laughs> especially given it came out of Tasmania's score of 398 for one. Dunk's innings included 13 sixes and was the first double century in Australian list day history. Now, he put on 277 with Tim Payne. That'll be relevant in a moment. Uh, Tim making 125 from 127. That was for the first wicket, which was broken in the 41st over, and they go on to make that 398. But then 
Press fast forward a couple of hours and Queensland have their turn and Usman Khawaja and Chris Hartley immediately break the record that was set in the first inning. So 277 was the highest partnership ever in the 50-over competition. Then Usman and Hartley put on 280 for the first wicket in just 35 overs. Khawaja making his way to a 70-ball century, eventually getting to 166 from 110 rocks. He was absolutely cruising uh, when he got out in the 36 over. Hartley uh, picked up where he left off and eventually made 142 from 120 before Joe Burns smashed 48 not out. They actually got there to their victory target of 399 with 16 balls to spare. They must have hit a boundary um, when the scores were level because they ended up making 402. So it makes for an even 800 runs across the game in I suppose that's 97.2 overs. It was by far the most successful run chase in 50-over cricket in Australia. And as for Y557, well, if you add the partnerships between Duncan Payne, who put on 277, and 280 between Usman and Hartley, the two opening stands, you get 557. So thanks, Will Cuxon. Not the most (laughs) uh, conventional way of getting to a number, but we've got there in the end. And also, Jeff, nice timing on a couple of fronts. One is that, Jeff, you were calling the final of that August competition just last Mm -hmm. weekend there at Bankstown. And secondly, that I don't know if you've seen it yet, Jeff, but Jarry Kimber has created a work of art uh, during the week. In fact, I'm sure he didn't just make it in a week. It would have taken a long time. He's done a 25-minute video essay about the career of Ben Dunk, and it is brilliant, and it is very Jared, and it is fascinating, and it is well worth a watch. So as I mentioned to Will, if he's interested in Ben Dunk's 229 not out, he's got to get his hands on the Kimber YouTube clip from this week. I might tweet that out so you can find it on my feed. Excellent. Uh, all right, you've done it. You've done it. Yeah, adding two partnerships together. I'm, I, you could have given me about ten years, and I wouldn't have worked that one out. Yes, so. I, I, I've. Uh, I, I sometimes. I sometimes have to note uh, in the back and forth that we're trying to. We're desperately wanting to tell the story. We desperately, desperately want to tell the stories. The um, the, the taking two or three weeks to work out the answers. Not the ideal way of getting to the story. But hey, I'm, I'm glad we reached five fifty seven. There, Will. Well, Will has another number coming up very shortly. Actually, I know it's coming in the list. So prepare yourself. For Prepare yourself. Um, right. Richard Casamento, I've been looking forward oh. to seeing what you do with this one, Adam, because Richard said that this was going to involve a DOB, a dusty old bastard, or in his phrasing, an ODB, which is an old dirty bastard who is a rapper from the Wu-Tang Clan. I'm not sure if Richard meant that, but that's how it worked out. And it related to a DOB, as in a player who played a small amount of test cricket a long time ago, but who was much less interesting and influential than his son, and we couldn't work out who this was last week. Um, and Dane Hanstead had a thought that maybe it could be Frank Misson's son, David, who has been a fitness guru for many sporting bodies after Frank played five tests for Australia in the early 60s. But I don't think that is the case. But Adam has been in correspondence with Richard and deep in the history books. And I know you have something for me, um, but I don't know what the details are. Yeah, this is my favourite bit of the week coming up. Uh, so uh, Richard uh, did give us another brief clue uh, he said if I was to mention this Australian player's cap number Jeff's response would inevitably be nice and with that DC play the music so who had the nice cap number for Australia? Well, that would be Arthur Conringham, who was the 69th Australian Test cricketer when he played one match in 1895. 
Wow, what a story this is. Okay, where to start? So, one test match in 1895, which, you know, didn't go particularly badly for him. We'll come to it in a bit. Didn't play again. Got into a scandal in 1899 where he tried to divorce his wife on the basis that she'd had it off with a Catholic priest who was quite high up in the church at the time. Mm. In the end, the court found that he'd fabricated the evidence and he left Australia in disgrace and moved across the ditch to New Zealand with his son, Arthur Jr. Whomst among us, Adam. (laughs) Whomst among us has not fabricated the evidence that our uh, spouse was having an affair with the Catholic priest. Yeah, it's quite quite, uh, riveting stuff, titillating stuff, you could say. So he had a five-year-old son at the time, uh, Arthur Jr. So they go across the ditch and Arthur Jr. grows up there. uh, And he goes on to serve in the First World War at Gallipoli. He's a pilot. But... Going back to the old man for a moment here, he uh, he ends up in jail anyway, so he flees to New Zealand but gets done for fraud. Um, he's in, in clink for a decent period of time. He eventually passes away in an asylum, so clearly a, a guy who had some pretty dark issues. But his kid really kicked on. So after World War One, he moved to the UK and became a real flying ace between the wars. And by the time World War Two comes around, he, he's front and centre with his experience. He leads the Western Desert Air Force in the African missions and is uh, knighted in 1943. And then he leads the tactical air forces at the Normandy invasion in 1944. He's considered to be something of a, a godfather of modern air warfare who was integral to the European invasion uh, in 1944 and, and 1945. And then tragically, Arthur Jr. died himself at, at a young age uh, in 1948 when he was flying in the Bermuda Triangle and his, and his plane vanished. So that's the story of the son. But yes, a, a considerable um, legacy as far as what he was able to uh, achieve uh, at the really important points of the Second World War. As to why we have the number 217 from Richard on this. So Arthur Senior in his one test match in 1895 at the MCG against England, he picked up two for 17 uh, with his left arm seam. Two for 17 from 11 overs, pretty useful figures, leading the attack against A.E. Stoddard's team. Archie McLaren was the first of his two wickets with England out for 75 in their first innings, but it went bad after that. Australia were all out for 123. Then England made 475 in their second innings with Stoddard, our man, A.E. Stoddard, making his his career best 173 and Conringham took a none for so they they dropped him and and the rest is history he didn't get to play again and yeah lost his mind it would seem Crick Info say here that his sole test match was memorable as he was no balled and in anger he deliberately hurled the next ball at Stoddard (laughs) and on his tour to England which he eventually uh, went on a couple of years later he was awarded a medal after saving a boy from drowning in the Thames and then he reportedly started a fire in the outfield during another tour game to keep warm. So um, <laughs> Arthur Conringham <laughs> Senior was an ideas yeah. man. He was the 69th yep. uh, Australian Test cricketer back in 1895. He took bowling figures of two for 17 in his first Test match. And his son was a, a man who did plenty in the Air Force before dying in 1948. And that, my friend, is without a shadow of a doubt. Richard Casamento, you've earned this. The Seabus Super Performer of the weekend. <laughs> well, for a fun that's as rewarding as that story was for Adam, uh, check out Seabus <laughs> today. Seabussuper.com.au slash the final word. Uh, you can get a PDS and you can remember that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This is extraordinary, though, that this guy, on the one hand, you've got, I'm going to 
falsify evidence to try to stitch up a Catholic priest, leave the country in disgrace, get arrested, end up in jail somewhere else. Then my son is Air Marshal Sir Arthur Conringham. Um, And how much do you want to bet that old man Arthur Conringham probably paid that kid a couple of shillings to get in the river and pretend he couldn't swim um, so that he could dive in and save him and get a gong? Because that all seems a bit too convenient for me. Yeah, yeah. And actually Richard found this by... Um, or found this number, or this story by listening to a history podcast, which was dealing with the Second World War and, and the and the and the, I assume looking at the the Normandy invasion. So, and that's how he found his way back to realizing that this guy's dad played Test cricket, and, and here he is on Nerd Pledge. So, thanks for sending us down that path. It was well worth it. Indeed, uh, a revisit from President Richard Bond McNally, the four. Pounds 84. Now, we were looking at a few different things for this over the last couple of weeks, but our listener, Glenn Finkeld, has solved it for us. Uh, he reckons that 484, and 484 had to relate in some way to Neil Fairbrother, the England batsman mm. of the 90s. He says 484 is Neil Harvey's batting average, 48.41. And Neil Fairbrother's middle name was Harvey, hence the link. And that's, in fact, correct. Richard Bond McNally says that is that is right. And, and he put this pledge up because he wanted to know more about Neil Harvey, someone who we haven't talked about as much as we've talked about others. Well, we did talk about the crazy test match that Neil Harvey played in against South Africa. Uh, we, we spoke about that a few weeks ago, Adam, that you were running through with yep. the big... Uh, the 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 big run chase on the last day. Yeah, the Hugh Tayfield seven for twenty three, where they were rolled for seventy odd in the first innings and chased three fifty on the final day, the fourth and final day. In fact, Jeff, during the week, and this shows what a cool kid I am. I was watching the documentary Cricket in the Fifties from the ABC made a long time ago with Winnie, and it features that right at the very front. So it is. Um, there are some highlights available of that game, which are worth having a look at. And Neil Harvey describes it as his uh, best test innings. He played 79 matches between 1948, debuting just before the Invincibles tour, and played for 15 years, made 6,149 runs, made 21 centuries. And I think, Jeff, Neil Harvey, it's fair to say, he, he is considered the best Australian batsman between Bradman's retirement and Greg Chappell's emergence in the early 70s. So mm. he, he occupies the majority of that time, and, and for most of that, he was the, yeah, the linchpin of the side. So for the president to mull over uh, Neil Harvey, he's still the youngest Australian to ever make a Test 100, which is pretty remarkable. It's not quite Bannerman longevity for a record, but it's a, it's a fair old distance of time. He was 19 and whatever days he was. Archie Jackson and Doug Walters are the only other 19-year-olds to make Test 100s for Australia. They were older 19-year-olds. Um, Phil Hughes was just past 20, probably a, a month or two past his 20th birthday when he made his first 100. And there was that crazy sequence for Neil Harvey when he came in. It wasn't just that he made a tonne at age 19. He made six tonnes in his first 13 Test innings, uh, was averaging over 100 uh, after those first 13 innings, and that included travelling to England and travelling to South Africa and making runs there. That South Africa series, he made 660 runs in eight hits, averaging 132. And, you know, I I was looking through his career preparing for this show and it it is a remarkable career. So he won series in the West Indies, in India, in Pakistan, in England and in South Africa, made big runs on at least one tour of all of those countries, Uh, won the Ashes four times, retained the Ashes once. So... You know, as far as career success goes, uh, a remarkable player, and 
Yeah, probably the only downside to Neil Harvey was that he became a bit of a renter quote for journos who wanted um, a cheap line from somebody to say something bad about modern cricket. Oh, it's not as good as it used to be, called Neil Harvey. But yeah, he was he he, he brought excitement and, and a sort of youthful joie de vivre to Australian cricket when it needed it. Yeah, and Glenn Finkeld, who who solved uh, that for us, he sent me um, some additional information about how his father grew up uh, in the same part of Fitzroy. It's is it what's the laneway there? I forget which one of these. Is it Argyle Lane, something like that, where there's those famous photos of the four Harvey brothers, of course, who all went on to play for Victoria, um, learning uh, on the cobbled streets, and I suppose that added to the mythology of why he was such a fantastic player of spin, why he was able to use his feet so well, is that he he learnt to hone his game in those conditions. Steve Kinane uh, has a chapter on that in his book, which is called First Tests, which goes and tracks the, the backstory of test cricketers. So, yeah, a fine player, a long career, and, of course, uh, a member of that Invincibles team. Had a big role to play in a number of those test matches, and glad we're able to go over the story today. So thanks to Richard Bond McNally for that opportunity. Uh, next number, Jeff, is Pat McKeon. Now, last week, Jeff... We Patrick thought- <laughs> McKeon, our old friend, here he comes. We we worked on the assumption that his 352 would be Gavin Hamilton via Greg Sykes, who solved this, not not Pat, on the basis of uh, Gavin's uh, one-day international batting average for Scotland being 35.2. Um, now, Pat came back to us and said that he loved the rabbit hole we went down last week. And, of course, we talked about, was it not Donald McDonald, but... Um, Gregor McGregor. Gregor McGregor, that's right, the previous week. Mm. My clue definitely could have been clearer we're sleuthing for a Scottish first class cricketer whose number can be economically tied to a Watson that is not the great Shane Roberts Jeff over to you for that one well that was the giveaway that was the giveaway we talked about this bloke recently it's only bloody Arthur Conan Doyle again isn't it (laughs) Scottish first class cricketer sleuthing Watson etc considering how long it took us to pick up on the clues about detective work uh, previously for the the Arthur Conan Doyle um, answer uh, I, I managed to get onto it a little bit faster this time. So we know that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle was largely a batsman, though, one of probably modest abilities, um, averaged a, a tick under 20 in first-class cricket, although that's that's probably pretty good for 1900-ish when <laughs> it wasn't always the easiest batting conditions. And we know that the one first-class wicket he took was WG Grace. So uh, I, I looked into his record in a lot more detail, and in, in his 10 matches... He only bowled twice. Um, Once was sort of in desperation after WG had got a ton for London County and and that's when Conan Doyle got him out, taking one for four from 13 deliveries. And then a couple of years later, he sent down 12 wicketless overs against the same team while Grace scored another 100. Uh, So all up in first-class cricket, that means Conan Doyle sent down 85 deliveries, conceding 50 runs and taking one wicket and 85 deliveries uh, up against 50 runs as a ratio is an economy rate per over of 3.52, the number from Pat McKeon. But you can look at those 10 matches from Conan Doyle and think, you know, pretty brief career. He was a mad cricketer. I went through all of the matches of his that I could find and I counted something like 367 miscellaneous matches (laughs) as in the level below first-class cricket when he was playing for various, you know, regimental teams and, and sort of minor counties and so on. Um, 367 matches, and, and I found a, another Conan Doyle website that reckoned he played over 400, so he spent a lot of his time playing cricket. Made six centuries, three 10-wicket matches, um, and when he did play first-class cricket, he won six out of the 10 games that he played. So not a shabby career, not one to be underestimated, really, in the end.
That's time well spent, Jeff. Thank you. And thanks to Pat McKeon, who's always an entertaining correspondent of ours. Uh, one, we have to go back a few weeks on for a revisit here from Alan Crampton and his 297. It was the fleeting moment clue. I think originally I thought it mm. was when um, Graham Gooch was dropped and then he went on to add 297 further runs, of course, when he made his 3-3-3 at Lords against India in 1990. Mm. That wasn't correct. And, Jeff, nor was it correct that at the time of recording, Wolbachowski's batting average was 297. We thought that was quite clever. A fleeting number, of course, his average mm. isn't going to stay at 297. Well, I suppose it did stay at 297 for the Shield season because he, he didn't actually play for Victoria uh, at the end of the campaign. But in any case, we were mm. wrong. Alan added that it was a number that partly came around because of the end of Mark Butcher's career. Yeah, so I started here because the immediate replacement for Mark Butcher in January 2005 when he left South Africa injured was Rob Key. And I so nearly managed to make this work for Rob Key because <laughs> he you know, famously made one century, which was 221, and played only a few more matches after that. And in those matches, made 295 test runs, which is not oh, 297, close. but 295, very, very close. So I thought, you know, it could be that Rob Key was able to continue his, his career and, and go on and make those 297 runs, but he, he needed to get two more. So it wasn't Rob Key, but six months earlier in the series where Key was making those runs and he had an, he nearly got another 100 when they were chasing a score and he ran out of runs, Flintoff bashed a half century and Rob Key was 93 not out and needed Flintoff to have left him another seven runs to get. How's this stuff? That's, so, his, um, he, that's his best mate too, isn't it, Andy Flintoff and Rob Key? So <laughs> he's not been looked after by his buddy there. Yeah, I mean, they were definitely going to win, so I'm not sure what the what the thinking was out there. But um, so in that West Indies series, so this is the English summer of 2004, Key's making runs and he plays once with a kid on debut named Ian Bell, who was an injury fill-in for one test for Graham Thorpe, who broke his hand while making 100 in the third test. So Bell plays in the fourth test, makes 70, gets out, Gets dropped again because he's a you know just a fill-in player, but Rob Key replaces Butcher and for a couple more tests on that South Africa tour, he doesn't end the tour that well. Ends up with scores of nineteen, one, and nine. They decide, okay, that's it, no more Rob Key. And so the next home summer, two thousand and five, when England have a couple of tests against Bangladesh before the O five Ashes, the selectors say Key out, Bell in. And he plays those two tests against Bangladesh. In the first, he makes 60 not out. In the second, he makes 162 not out, meaning that coming into the 05 Ashes, Ian Bell had a test batting average of 297, after which he made seven scores in single figures, including a pair at the Oval, and the average dropped down to 42, which is roughly where it finished up at the end of his career. Oh, that 297, is... the fleeting batting average of Ian Bell. That is so nicely done. Again, Jeff, well played, and thanks to Alan Crampton for coming back to us. There is no uh, statute of limitations on revisits. If your number was incorrectly uh, deduced by perhaps Andrew Sampson when, or, 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 uh, or, or uh, who else have we had on? Daniel Norcross back Andy in 2019. Zaltzman. Andy Zaltzman, Jonathan Liu. We've had a number of people join us mm-hmm. for Nerd Pledge Quiz a, a while ago. If they got it wrong, then let us know and we can come back to it all these months and years later. So that is our penultimate revisit for today, the last of which is Dr. Matthew Jones uh, with 113. Initially, uh, well, we said lots of things. <laughs> we've, we've, uh, we've had a few goes uh, at this. One of the solutions was that it's the number of wickets that Bruce Reed and Ryan Harris both took against uh, in Test cricket, rather. Um, but it, it wasn't any of that. So um, 
Matt enjoyed the answers we've given, but none of them are correct. He wants to steer us in the right direction by giving us a number of clues. One was David Byrne singing Once in a Lifetime and two Australian brothers, but not the war twins. And from there, with a bit of back and forth, we worked out that he was actually talking about David Boone's one for 13 against Australia, right, for Australia in the first final of the 94, in the second final, I should say, of the 94-95 one-day cup where all the quadrangular where England and Zimbabwe uh, were there, but Australia were joined by Australia A. Now, where there was the complication and why I didn't get anywhere near this is that it's not a one-day international. When Australia A played games in that tournament, of course, they, they didn't get... They got list day status, but not ODI mm. status, which is why I, I was nowhere near it to begin with. I was looking through one-day stats at one point. But, yeah, so goes the story, which I think we've told in the past, Jeff. Uh, Phil Emery was the man who was batting, and the captain of the Australian team, Mark Taylor, knew Phil Emery really well and thought this will get in his head by bowling Booney at him, and it worked a treat with his filthy leg breaks, and he was caught at cow corner there in front of the Great Southern Stand. So that is what it's referring to. But it was worth going back around to the clues uh, that Matt sent through. So why David Byrne singing Once in a Lifetime? Well, of course, that was David Boone on The Late Show singing Once in a Lifetime as David Byrne. And then two Australian brothers, not the War Twins, relates to the two brothers that we would often see on The Late Show, that same TV show played by Rob Sitch and Santo Chalaro, who honour David Boone and his uh, tinny drinking record. Legend, legend, dead set legend, top bloke, top bloke, and all the rest. I'm sure we've seen uh, those clips on YouTube plenty of times over the years. So uh, thanks, Matt, for helping us get to the bottom of that. He also noted in his correspondence, Jeff, that you'd referred to Barjas a few weeks ago. I don't remember you doing this, but Barjas was another character on The Late Show, so we've had quite a few links uh, back to that famous Australian comedy program in the last couple of weeks, so it ties together well. And in addition to all of that, the reason why Matt wanted to pick 113 is that there's a personal link. He lost two close mates in the last couple of months, one to suicide and one to a car accident that also killed his daughter tragically. Cricket was their bond, uh, and in the case of his oldest mate since he was in high school, he says, we would endlessly quote the late show to each other, especially the Boonie sketches. I'd fly home after not seeing him for a couple of years and the quotes would start flying. We went to our first day of test cricket together at Bell Reeve Oval. Due to COVID, I couldn't fly back for the funeral. So 113 is a nod to my mate and his daughter. Thank you, Matt. And I'm glad that we could tell the story that you wanted to have told uh, in the end after working our way around to it through through the undergrowth and through the shrubbery, uh, which is what story time is all about. Walks in the woods, uh, a bit of shade, a bit of sunlight. So that's the end of our revisited numbers. We've got the new numbers done. Uh, a couple of confirmations about the ones we have got right, because it's nice to remember that we can get one right once in a while. <laughs> yes, we, we occasionally do. Peter T, 614. Jeff, you were bang on saying it was Sean Tate's haul of six wickets with 14 wides in a one day for South Australia. Just as a side note, Peter says, I spent a really long time trying to find a flavoured milk connection to this number as well. And he says here, a 600 milliliter carton of milk, which had exactly 61.4 grams of sugar in it. <laughs> and I'm disappointed that I couldn't find one. But anyway, thanks. <laughs> so he's had a, had a real go there at trying to draw Sean Tate and flavoured milk together. Um, if anyone else can, uh, can, can link those two things uh, up, uh, please do let us know in the patron DMs. Look, I, I've 
having spent a lot of time on some very obscure things for this show, um, I, I'm glad to know that some of our listeners are doing the same thing, uh, investing their time in this useful way. Luke Appleton's $2.26, £2.26, I think it was, uh, because Adam guessed Joe Root's 226 at the Tron. And uh, Luke wrote in to say, having listened for a few months, I feel safe in confessing that I totally forgot what my last pledge was actually about because it was done at a silly hour of the day after a few jars. We'll just say that you were right. <laughs> default, default, the two sweetest words in the English language. That's uh, We had Anna Forsyth sent through a couple of nerd pledges that she didn't know what they were mm. after a, a night on the tiles. So um, you're in a strong tradition there, Luke. Thank you again. Jeff, on to the Bannermans. Now, before we get into the new Bannermans, I had a dream about Bannerman last night. I dreamt about you last night and I fell out of bed twice. Um, it's Scott Borthwick yesterday for Durham, the new captain of Durham, returning to the club after a few years at Surrey. He has made an even century against Essex out of 148 for eight. This morning, when Durham resumed their innings, now Borthwick's out, I should say. If... The last two wickets fall without further score. We have ourselves a Bannerman in the county championship. Borthwick will have Bannermaned it after I think Durham bowled out Essex for 96 or something like that. So there was obviously plenty in the track, which highlights what an amazing innings it must have been uh, strumming an, an even century at a strike rate of like 77 or something like that, completely against the flow of play yesterday. But yeah, so it, it'll all hinge on what happens in the first, I suppose, first five or 10 minutes of play today. We're recording uh, about two hours before play resumes. So I assure you, I'll be tuning into the stream and watching that because if those wickets fall, um, Scotty Borthwick, one of the good guys in cricket, uh, will be above 67.35. <laughs> uh, extremely exciting that all of this will have already been resolved at the time that the show goes out. <laughs> so people can retrospectively enjoy your excitement, a, a bit like us recording a, the show with Glenn Maxwell um, the, uh, before a football game in which he was excited about how his team St Kilda might do. They were subsequently <laughs> absolutely demolished before we even managed to publish the show. Um, so, look, <laughs> these are the timelines on which we work, in which, on which, I don't know, what do you do with a timeline? So those are the confirmations. Now to a scorecard that has come in from a couple of sources, uh, Thomas Melia and Jeremy Burke, both of whom concede that it is not, strictly speaking, a Bannerman in that the batting side of interest was not dismissed. Uh, they were eight wickets down at the end of this T20 match. Um, but this is a match between uh, the Easterns under-19s women and the Mupalanga under-19s women in uh, South Africa in 2016-17, the CSA Girls Under-19 Week. And it's a, it's a match I remember getting some prominence at the time. I, I remember when it came up because it is a truly remarkable scorecard. Mpumalanga batting first make 8 for 169 uh, and then bowl out their opponents. Well, they don't bowl them out. They restrict them to 127 uh, and win comfortably. That's not so remarkable in itself. Of the 169 runs that Mpumalanga scored, nine of them were extras. 160 of them were scored by the opening bat, Shania Lee Swart, which means that every other player made naught in the match. So there are seven, eight others who bat because they, they, they lose eight wickets. They've got two who didn't bat, sorry. So nine players who batted, of which we have naught, 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 
and Nought. The best of those was a 10-ball duck, and well, maybe the second best was uh, Nought Not Out from three balls at the end. But Shania Lee, opening the batting, made 160 from 86 balls, faced most of the deliveries, hit 18 fours and 12 sixes, and scored every single run <laughs> off the bat herself <laughs> that day. Wow, Shania. Whoa, uh- Oh, 160 <laughs> out of 169. No one else scoring a run. I mean, there's there's lots to take from this. She faced 86 deliveries, so she did a pretty yep. decent job of managing the strike in the calamitous circumstances down the other end. I mean, I feel for the first change bowler who took five for 15 from four overs, and they've still lost the game, and only <laughs> one player scored runs. I mean... Yes, I wonder what she's gone on to do, Shania. I mean, we should keep an eye on her. Maybe we should get her on the podcast I, at some point. I um, I can tell you, actually, because I, I was very interested in this story. It's a shame for cricket because she, she's now playing sevens rugby. Uh, she's she's at university playing in a, a university rugby team because she was, I think she was only 16 or something when she played this innings. She was a, a strong girl um, and she she had a couple of other crazy sort of innings as well. She she played a 50-over game around that same period of time for the same team where she made 289 from 182 balls <laughs> and batted through most of, of the innings there as well. She'd made a double hundred in a T20 game on another occasion. So that, that innings where she made the 289, she scored 91% of the runs for the team in that innings. <laughs> As, as opposed to 100% of the runs, extras aside. But she was batting at first drop in that game as well, so she didn't even get to come out first. <laughs> so Shania Lee Swart, um, yeah, we, I don't know why she's gone to rugby. I don't know why that stole her heart, but we should try to get her back into cricket at some stage. Jeff, on the theme of crazy scorecards, uh, the second Bannerman, or not quite Bannerman, but totally worth uh, uh, grouping with the Bannermans this week is from Chris Arkell. He explained that there have been five instances in first-class cricket where a player has carried their bat for zero, so the reverse Bannerman, as he calls it, uh, the, mm-hmm. the epitome of the reverse Bannerman, um, the last of which was in 1868 by Thomas Hearn uh, for Middlesex against Kent. But this is the most remarkable uh, because he scores zero out of 127 in 61 overs. So 127 runs were scored and he watched all of them uh, down the non-striker's end whilst not scoring a run himself which is just wild really when, when you think about it naturally I was quite curious about uh, Thomas Hearn after reading through that card and found out he was involved in another completely wild game as well uh, during his first class career it was an MCC against Surrey fixture Jeff uh, where the MCC were all out for 16 where at one stage against Surrey they were 7 for none which is the worst start ever in a first-class fixture. And Hearn was the seventh duck in that sequence as well. So he's carried his bat for naught out of 127 in 1868. And then four years on playing for the MCC with a a team being um, led by WG Grace, I might add. He was the first duck in that run. Uh, But Surrey had them at one point, seven for zero. Hearn was the seventh to fall. And they're all out for 16. So a couple of uh, noteworthy moments in his career uh, where he was involved in calamitous innings, especially the all-out 16. You look through it, it's another wild card. That must be close to the lowest first-class score of all time as well. 
lower order chipped in, obviously. So that's you know that's something to take away from it. <laughs> Arthur um, Bencher and, and top scored with eight. <laughs> he was on his way to carrying his bat again if he was seventh out. Maybe he was just really good at making bowlers deliver extras. Like he he was able to deflect it off his pads for leg buys or something and play really risk free cricket and move around the crease a lot and make them bowl wides and so on. And and so he didn't need to score runs off the bat. Uh, but it doesn't say how many of the the, the hundred and sixty odd were extras while he was at the bowl. Increase yeah. at the bat increase. He, he did make four first class tons over 5,000 runs, only averaged 19. He was more of a bowler, actually, looking at it here. He took 292 first class wickets at six at 13.67. So a full, uh, a full and rich uh, time in cricket from Thomas Hearn. Mm-hmm. Thank you to Chris Arkell for uh, bringing that to our attention. Well, we, we've got the nomination for the reverse Bannerman in tests that Sean McGiven has dug up, which is the lowest percentage of team score while carrying the bat. Sean says, it looks like it's, guess who, Glenn Turner, <laughs> who scored 43 out of New Zealand's 131 in England in 1969, 32.8% of the runs. So not only does he hold the first class Bannerman record for a conventional Bannerman, he also holds the test reverse Bannerman, Glenn Turner. I love the idea that our Bannerman segment's now just becoming a proxy for sort of fruity scorecards where weird stuff's happened. um, (laughs) Glenn Turner getting a run again. Delightful. Jeff, our final segment each week is the correspondence. We've got a couple of emails that I wanted to have us read out this week. The first is from Kieran O'Kane. He just wanted to bring to our attention a member of his club uh, back home for Milton Cricket Club, Ed Pinches, uh, works for Alzheimer's Research in the UK and he's organising a runs for research over the 2021 season. The idea is pretty simple. Cricketers sign up, you pledge a small amount, i.e. 5p or 5 cents per run or wicket or something like that, and it adds up to a pretty decent donation, hopefully, across the course of a season. Uh, Kieran notes that uh, Ryan Sidebottom's already got involved in this. So fantastic stuff from Ed Pinches. I think I've mentioned on the show before that Alzheimer's was a a big part of my my childhood. My grandmother died quite young, uh, having uh, contracted it, if that's the right word, at age 50. So it's um, an awful thing. So any uh, money that can be contributed to Alzheimer's Research UK as part of this campaign, I'm sure will be uh, most appreciated. And again, thanks to Kieran O'Kane for raising it and having it brought up on the show. And uh, from Pat Rogers, our last bit of correspondence, uh, a proud dad moment to share that doesn't need publicising, he said, but we said, well, we want to publicise it. (laughs) So he said, okay, go on then. Pat Rogers, who often uh, solves our various uh, questions and and comes up with a lot of cricket history for us, said... uh, our son, Matt, captain Sydney Cricket Club to the first grade premiership defeating Manly in the grand final on Sunday, 352 all out to 123. Uh, just the fifth win for the club in first grade in 124 years, um, he points out. There's a very strong link between a lot of uh, county cricket and first grade cricket in Sydney the top seven batsmen in the Kent team in the first round of this year's county championship had all played first grade in Sydney. There are about 70 current county players who've who've played Sydney first grade. So it's nice that there's that little relationship between the two extremes of the cricketing world. Yeah, I found that amazing to think that there's all these players in the county championship who have experience uh, there playing in Sydney. Stevie Eskenazi, of course, the captain of Middlesex, was part of that Sydney team that won the flag. Uh, and he was back, of course, leading uh, Middlesex uh, last week at Lords. Our last bit of Coro, Jeff, is one that I just picked up off Twitter before um, sent my way overnight. So Andrew Sampson uh, popped on Twitter yesterday, a quite remarkable factoid that the county championship started in 1890 and the Sheffield Shield in 1892. 
and yesterday, the 15th of April, was the first time they've ever had play on the same day, of course, with the Shield final taking place this week and uh, the early season uh, of the county championship in the UK. Obviously, in ordinary circumstances, they would never overlap with the two summers. So yesterday's the first day in, what's that, 130-odd years in, in both comps that they've, they've overlapped. And Paco on Twitter wanted to say to me, CC and Sheffield together at last. Fran won't be having a bar of that. <laughs> <laughs> that is so good. That is that is. You know when someone tells you a joke, we like. I want that joke. I want to have made up that joke, but I the, didn't. The, uh, I, I keep. Uh, I, once I received that this morning, the first thing I did, we, uh, we had Winnie in in bed with us feeding this morning, and the first thing I did was play the nanny theme song for Rachel again on YouTube. <laughs> Much to her dismay, I cannot wait till that's on a streaming service soon. She's going to watch every episode with me. Uh, to everyone in the UK who doesn't know what the nanny is, now's your time. <laughs> Work it out. <laughs> Uh, yes, the, the overlapping seasons. I guess this will be the end of our season probably coming up on the show this Wednesday. It might be the last show of Season 9 mm. now that the Sheffield Shield will be done. The Australian season will be finished and we'll start Season 10 of The Final Word. Exciting. Now with story time in tow, that's enough for the show this week. It is The Final Word Story Time. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The show is on the Bad Producer Podcast network uh you can find all of their other shows it's edited by dave collins thanks to cbus super and to the lord's taverners for supporting the show and uh, thanks most of all as always to everybody on the patron page the lifeblood of the program and for the only reason that this nerdy number wandering even exists at all if you want to join up and be part of the fun patron.com slash the final word and if you haven't signed up and you want to, then you can do so in the next few days and be part of the live audience as we record our next show, which will be uh, happening on Tuesday. Uh, so people on the Patreon page will be able to jump in the Zoom audience for that, presumably as long as we can make the technology work. That's enough. Final word. We'll see you next week. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about it.